is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Vaccine setback here in the U.S. The health officials recommending a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Blood clot concerns. Six reports of clots following use of the vaccine. It's already been given to 7 million people. So we'll look into what's going on and if this will disrupt the vaccination efforts. We'll also get into how this will impact the country's largest state, California, and its 40 million people. Will the recommendation to pause the J&J shots spook even more people, stop them from getting a vaccine? We'll get into what's going on in Michigan, which is the major COVID hotspot in the U.S. right now. And England emerging from a long lockdown. We'll take a trip across the pond, find out how things are going. Let's begin with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and California. Dr. Jeffrey Luther is a member of the California Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors and a member of the California COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee. Doctor, are, are we going to have trouble reaching uh, you know, the vaccination levels that we want as well as reopening goals because of this? Well, I don't think we'll have that much more trouble making it in that we hadn't been receiving much of the Johnson Johnson vaccine to date. As you know, they've had difficulty with their distribution and manufacture. So a huge majority of the vaccines that we've been relying on have been the Moderna and the Pfizer. Uh, obviously, going forward, we would like to be able to plan on having as many authorized vaccines available as possible, but I don't think we'll feel it in the short run. It will make it tougher with everyone becoming eligible on Thursday. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the governor tweeted out the Johnson Johnson makes up 4% of the supply right now. So we think about the right now. Were we expecting that to be a greater percentage down the line? And could we run into trouble that way or, or just find a way to cover everybody with the Pfizer and Moderna? Well, I think we were expecting or hoping to have more already. And the fact that we haven't, we at least we're hoping for more in future. This is just pushing that farther ahead. I, there will still not, the limiting factor to vaccinating Californians will continue to be uh, availability of doses, but the other back manufacturers are saying they're going to ramp up and we're trusting that that's true. We're going to uh, talk about this a little bit more in our next segment, but let me ask you what we sort of uh, mentioned at the very top of the show about, you know, vaccine hesitancy whether or not you have a concern that with this latest news involving Johnson & Johnson, uh, although not yet available in the U.S., there is also that news involving the AstraZeneca shot, that it's going to feed into the anxiety that, let's face it, some people have about getting these vaccines. Yeah, that absolutely is a concern of mine. If you look at the the data so far, we've given almost 7 million J&J vaccines and had six cases of this type of blood clot. Um, So not quite one in a million, whereas five people in a million get the same kind of blood clot before the COVID vaccine came out in the United States, just because it happens. So, so far, nothing is suggested it's caused by the vaccine or it's more likely because of the vaccine, but we have to be sensible and look at the possibilities. The biggest fear I have is that, that public confidence in the vaccines will take a hit and everything we can do to communicate as openly and truthfully as possible, but encouraging people to trust that there's far more greater risk of blood clots if you're taking birth control pills or you smoke or you get COVID than there is getting a a vaccine. Hopefully we'll give them a little bit of pause to consider. For people who had uh, an appointment tomorrow and it was J&J and they're going, oh, what do I do? Is it, you know, a matter of don't, don't cancel it because they'll probably hopefully reschedule you into one of the others? That would be my hope, yes. If you can't get, if you can't or won't get the J&J, see which of the other ones you can get. 
but don't get don't step out of line. All right. Dr. Jeffrey Luther, member of the California Academy, family physicians, board of directors, member of the COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee. Let's explore the Johnson & Johnson issue some more with a focus on the blood clots and what could be causing them. KYW's Carol McKenzie with one of the country's foremost vaccine experts, Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, this problem was first seen with AstraZeneca's vaccine in Europe, where people who got the vaccine, especially younger people, especially younger women, had this very unusual blood clot called central venous sinus thrombosis, which is a a blood clot in your brain that can be serious and occasionally fatal. So, so the question was, was this a class effect? In other words, the, 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 the UK AstraZeneca vaccine is a vectored virus. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine is also a vectored virus. One is replication effective simian adenovirus in, in, for the AstraZeneca. The one in Johnson and Johnson's replication effective human adenovirus type 26. Though there was always a question of whether there would be this, this effect here as well. Now it looks like it might be and, 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 and likely is. So it's, it's rare. It's probably about one per 250,000 people who get this vaccine, but it's real. And I think because in this country, in the U.S., we have other alternatives like the two messenger RNA vaccines, I think they they wisely put a a hold on this uh, vaccine. Any reason why it seems to be mostly women? Don't know. I mean, it, it does. They're, they're getting to the, the sort of the basis of this particular problem, which is that you make an antibody response against something called platelet factor four, which then causes your platelets to to aggregate or set another way to cause a clot and causes a, a general lowering of platelets in your bloodstream. Don't know. I don't know that. I, I suspect we'll know that over time. The other interesting thing is what we've been reading this morning is that the treatment of this type of blood clot is different than others. Uh, does that play into this, do you think? So, so typically, when you have a blood clot, you want the blood clot to resolve. So you give medicines like heparin. The problem is, is that heparin also causes a, sim- a problem similar to this called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which also activates the same mechanism, this platelet factor four. So you can't use heparin. So you're going to have to use a different blood thinner than heparin. And then the CDC says it's going to con- uh, convene a meeting of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, tomorrow to review these cases and the potential significance. I know it's it's still too early to tell. The FDA, of course, is going to analyze this as well. What happens then from here on out with this? Well, I think we'll gather more data. We'll, we'll try and, and, and look at people who got the vaccine, who didn't get the vaccine to, to prove that the, this risk of this so-called central venous uh, sinus thrombosis is much more likely to occur in a vaccinated than unvaccinated group, even if it's rare in the vaccinated group. And I th- if it is, if that holds up, and I think it probably will, I mean, we may find that this vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, is permanently pulled from the United States market. Yeah, for people who have an appointment for J&J, those appointments automatically canceled. What happened? Yes, I think that's what happens. This has been been on on pause, and I suspect it will probably be, may well be permanently pulled. So I think there are people who are planning on getting the J&J vaccine should should assume they're not going to be getting it. And for people who have just recently gotten it, they should know that this is an extremely rare phenomenon. And if it occurs, it occurs within two weeks of getting a dose. So, so, you know, uh, once you're past that two week uh, mark, you're fine. Do you have any indication, any signs that you might be developing these clots, any symptoms? Well, the symptoms aren't aren't subtle. I mean, they would be things like seizures, um, you know, or, or uh, that sort of thing. So it would, would not be subtle. It's not a subtle thing. OK. And then one last question, Dr. Offit. You know, we've been battling vaccine hesitancy since the vaccines came out and 
you know, this the Johnson and Johnson news today, the AstraZeneca news with blood clots, also the Johnson and Johnson manufacturing issues. Can you offer, um, I, I guess, words of comfort to people who might be now frightened to get a vaccine, any of the vaccines? Well, it tells you that people are constantly looking, even for rare side effects. I mean, when you do clinical trials of, say, 30,000 for Moderna or 44,000 for Pfizer or roughly 40,000 for Johnson Johnson, that's not tens of millions of people. So you're not going to pick up rare side effects pre-approval. But, but it's good to know people are constantly looking to see if there's even a rare side effect. So when a rare side effect is picked up, like this one, which occurs probably in one in 250,000 people, and then you know that, that, uh, that the, the people are saying, you know, we shouldn't use this vaccine even for, with a rare side effect, that should be even more reassuring about the vaccines like the mRNA vaccines, for example, which have been given to more than 100 million people and haven't had any problem like that. And this this knocks us back, though, doesn't it, uh, in the effort to vaccinate people, because we're now going to lose millions of doses of vaccine. You're right. But I think that there's enough of the mRNA vaccines that, that by the summer, frankly, we should still have enough vaccine for everyone. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. That's Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is also a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. So is the recommendation to temporarily stop the J&J vaccine an overreaction, or was it done out of an abundance of caution? Did it scare people away from getting any vaccine? Dr. Sandra Bliss-Nelson, infectious disease specialist, Massachusetts General. Doctor, was this an overreaction, or was it something prudent? You know, follow the science, it's the way it's supposed to go. No, the reality is it's a tough situation either way, and this is a, a... This is a problem in terms of uh, whether or not you you pause it or whether or not you don't pause it. It's still going to be there's still going to be negative consequences in the press. And I think that there are some signals that there is an issue that this this uh, thrombosis problem, this clotting problem is real. And if we didn't acknowledge that and if we didn't address it, I think the downstream effects would be greater than a pause now. Okay, so, yeah, we can break it apart. Right. Number one is you can look at it. Hey, science, it's working. We're being very, very prudent. Abundance of caution. We're going to figure this out. And then if we come through on the other side and the shot's still good, you should be confident that you can take it. But as you mentioned, a lot of people don't make it past the headline and they say it's scary. It doesn't work. I don't want this thing under any circumstances. You know, it's a real problem in terms of how we perceive risk, and that's been an issue for all of us throughout this entire pandemic. We don't necessarily recognize the real risks uh, associated both with transmission and not with transmission. And in this case, if you actually do an analysis, the risk of a complication from the vaccine is, is so much lower than the risk of a complication from COVID. You're much more likely to die from COVID than you are from getting the vaccine. Well, funny you uh, should... But, I, but we don't view it that way. Well, funny you should say that about calculating. So uh, I did that on my my phone because my own brain could not possibly do this. Uh, but I divided the seven, uh, the, the six deaths by the seven million some odd shots uh, given. And again, not at all, of course, to to downplay those who got ill or died from it. But still, that comes out to zero point zero 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 eight six. Right. And you compare that with the risk of death from COVID, which is around 2%. So it's a dramatic, you know, degrees of magnitude difference. I think that one of the reasons for the pause is, you know, the six cases are the cases that we know about. There are 
the, the, we know a little bit more about the AstraZeneca vaccine challenges in the in the European Union and in the UK, and it may be that the that this is the six that we know about now may not represent the full spectrum of of the illness, and I think that's really the reason for the pause. We need to understand what the prevalence is. We need to understand how common it is, and we need to put it into context so that we can really accurately weigh those risks. Is this partly for us and partly for providers? Uh, for us, it's you know if you got this and you have like severe headaches or strange leg and abdominal pain and and then you can start to you know call your doctor and be like what's going on but also for the doctors because whatever kind of clot this is is not your run-of-the-mill blood clot they need to know what to look for because it's treated differently is that correct that's absolutely correct. Now, the, the usual approach when you see somebody with a blood clot is to provide a blood thinner. And the common blood thinner that we use is one that actually makes this problem a lot worse. And so you're absolutely right. Part of this is getting the news out. Part of this is getting the awareness out to physicians so that we understand how to treat these issues uh, at the same time that we're gathering more data and doing that risk analysis. Now, I know with the AstraZeneca, at first they thought that it was uh, a problem only for women, but then I think they, it turned out that in the UK, more women were actually uh, getting the shots than men. And so that was the reason. Uh, here with the Johnson & Johnson, I believe that the uh, the six deaths uh, or cases so far have been women. So is this a problem for women only? And also, let's just take a look at the, we said about 7 million people have gotten these shots. What should they be on the lookout for in case they unfortunately are one affected? I think we don't really know the um, the prevalence of in men versus women, but I think the signal overseas, in not only in the UK, but also the rest of the European Union, about two thirds to three quarters of the cases have been um, have been reported in women. And there is a plausible risk in that younger women in particular are a little bit more prone to blood clots, particularly if they're uh, taking hormonal contraception or other um, hormonal treatments. In terms of what people should be on the lookout for, first, I think if anyone has received a J&J vaccine, they should just relax. This is a very, very, very low risk problem. The complications or the symptoms uh, of the blood clot in the brain, the venous thrombosis in the brain, patients will present with headache, particularly a constant headache that may not go away and may even get worse with certain positional changes, nausea, vomiting, uh, vision changes. There are some abdominal blood clot symptoms as well. And so an unexplained abdominal pain would also be a clue. But again, the vast majority of people who have those symptoms are not going to have this complication. I like that first step deep breath. Dr. Sandra Bliss Nelson, infectious disease specialist, Massachusetts general assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Coming up after this short break, what's the matter with Michigan? Michigan is dealing with the worst surge in the U.S. right now. Cases are up as people are in the hospital. The pace of vaccine distribution also being criticized. Politics creeping into things, too, because that tends to happen. With us is WWJ News Radio reporter Zach Clark in Detroit. So, Zach, any growing consensus on why you guys are having such a tough time right now? Well, I think that's part of the problem, gentlemen. Good to be with you, is that there really isn't a consensus. I think you can look at a variety of things. I mean, one of them is Michigan's high rate of the B117 variant. That's the UK version. Um, numbers came out yesterday, said it was 30% more contagious, but thankfully it doesn't seem to be more dangerous. So, but still, you see that accelerated rate. About a month ago, the governor lifted restrictions on things like indoor dining and the like. And so as, as time has gone on, we've seen cases go up and, and, 
there's an argument over the exact correlation. Again, everything has become political, not just here in Michigan, but certainly here in Michigan, about what's causing that rise. But every time the restaurants open, the numbers continue to go up. And so I think there's a variety of things that are contributing. It's all kind of swirling right now. I think there are people that are going through fatigue, right? I mean, we're in the 13th month of this pandemic, and I think it's grinding on people. And then I do think there are people that think we've hit the finish line, that you know, they've gotten their vaccine or they've gotten one dose or other people have gotten theirs. And so they're just kind of done with it. And I think, you know, if you put that in the cocktail shaker and poured it out, I mean, it's, it's a dangerous drink. Now, of course, the, your, your governor there has been rebuffed by the White House, right? I mean, she's wanted to have an increase uh, of vaccines and the White House is saying, no, that's not going to help because it takes, you know, weeks for vaccines to kick in. Uh, is she disappointed, as far as you know, that after all, you know, they're both Democrats, she and the president, and she was considered a political ally, and I guess she thought she was going to kind of pull in a political favor? Yeah, I don't know if she thought she was going to score with the ability to get the vaccine, but there's certainly disappointment here in Michigan, and, and she doesn't shoulder that alone. You've heard um, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, um, Senator Debbie Stabenow, have both made similar requests to the White House. I think it is somewhat of a surprise. I think somebody from the CDC yesterday said that doing it that way would be uh, similar to playing whack-a-mole. And, you know, the governor has kind of, over the last month or so, made this pivot to, you know, at first it was regulation, restriction to, to slow the spread. But over the last month, her messaging has been vaccinations will get us out of this. And Michigan has done a pretty good job with the vaccine rollout. It's been relatively smooth. Nothing is perfect, um, but they haven't been able to vaccinate at the rate the cases are spreading. And again, you're seeing that climb. And, you know, I know that this time a year ago, it felt like it was the worst. But if you look for Michigan numbers wise, the worst part of the pandemic is happening in Michigan right now. And we're 13 plus months into it. So she gave her, her COVID briefing to governor a few days ago, and then the talk started right about, so oh, are we going to have more restrictions? Are we going to do lockdowns again? But as you were saying earlier, there's probably not a lot of appetite for that. There's certainly no appetite for that, but I think it, it still came as a surprise. And, and the governor would be, um, I think, to a certain extent, supportive no matter what she does. I know that from the outside looking in, it may seem that she's unpopular, but the governor in Michigan enjoys a, a, a pretty high uh, popularity rate, at least relatively speaking, right? Uh, so, so I, I was surprised. I think everybody was surprised. She, she has been such a staunch advocate of, you know, she calls it a dial. You turn things back when the cases get high, and as they get better, you turn them up and you allow more things to happen. And so, when 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 she held that press conference last week, it was on Friday, and she didn't do anything. She made requests, right? She asked schools to. Um, go on a two-week virtual basis. She asked sports to pause. She asked people to stay away from restaurants. And that wasn't received very well because restaurant owners feel like they've taken the brunt of it. But the surprise was that she didn't, she didn't require it. And that, that's, a, that's a 180. And you know, we talked to several people in Lansing, political analysts and people like that, and they were pretty surprised. And I think it was somewhat of a, a head scratcher that she didn't do more. And, and now she's getting criticized from you know the CDC and others. And so it's just we're in this weird position where all of a sudden, um, you, like you mentioned, the governor being allies with Biden and the White House, but it, it doesn't feel like that. So I don't think it's intentional. It's just we're in this weird position. Zach Clark, WWJ in Detroit. Zach, thanks. Great Britain is coming out of a three-month lockdown. England reopened all retail, hairdressers, gyms, and pub gardens on Monday. 
Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales are due to reopen different elements of their societies in coming weeks. Vaccine rollout has gone quite well, though the Prime Minister warning cases could tick up now that things are open back up. Darren Adam, presenter on Leading Britain's Conversation, LBC Radio. So, Darren, you celebrating? Well, here's the thing. I'm not currently in England, which is the part of the country where those rules have been relaxed. I I will be again very soon. Ordinarily, I'm in London, but for the purpose or for the duration of the lockdown, I've been staying in Edinburgh, which is my other address. And I've been there with my partner. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen each other for months. Anyway, I will be back in London in about a week. But as things stand in England, the pubs have reopened only for outdoor service. Now, that has not deterred people. The fact that we've had maybe six degrees and flurries of snow in much of England (laughs) has not deterred people from going to the pub and braving those rather un-Californian weather conditions, I think. Uh, There is a bit of fear, actually, that people have been a little bit too enthusiastic. But the science says, well, it says two things. Firstly, vaccination is going very well in the UK. But also, if you're outdoors, the chance of COVID spreading is significantly diminished. And, And so I think people are for better or worse, they're taking their chances, but those chances are much better than they might have been six months ago. Yeah, I was going to say, are you jealous or do you feel safer being where you are? Well, I'm I'm going to be back there anyway. And actually, in other regions of the, the country, such as Scotland, the rules will change in very short order anyway. Things are essentially moving at the same sort of pace, but there are some differences in different parts of the country. Do you know, I actually haven't had a drink in a year. And that it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just something I fell into. I don't know whether it's that I've never been someone to particularly enjoy having a drink at home as opposed to being in the pub. So maybe that's what's governed it. Maybe once the pubs are properly reopened once again, that is a taste that I will rediscover. But right now I'm... I'm looking on fondly at, uh, at the enjoyment that other people are having without necessarily wanting to rush to it myself. So let, let's move on to uh, yeah. Prince Philip, uh, the deceased Prince Philip. Uh, the funeral is this weekend, right? Uh, does the uh, loosening of the lockdown in the UK have any impact at all on that? doesn't seem to. It is interesting that the BBC received the highest number of complaints about any single issue in its history when it decided to broadcast with as much enthusiasm, shall we say, or as much totality as it did coverage of uh, the prince's death for uh, for two days on Friday and, and Saturday. Uh, they've never had as many complaints as they did from people who were aggrieved that other coverage was not available. So I think that's that's indicative of the fact that there isn't perhaps quite as much interest in that as as might be thought. And to your question, does that feed into whether people are going to be enthusiastically or rather less enthusiastically going to the pub? No, I don't think so. No evidence of that. The Prince Harry specter, though, going over there for the funeral is, you know, the big gossip and watch here. Is that going to be the same there? Because you wonder about the interesting family dynamics of that after the interview. Well, that will interest what we would describe as the usual suspects, I suspect, in this country. Piers Morgan will be screaming about... (laughs) Him being here or not being here or Megan being here or not being here, whatever the, the combination happens to be. I, I really don't. And all, the funeral itself takes place on Saturday. It will be televised, but it will, for two reasons, be quite a small service. Firstly, the covid restrictions, uh, which which now permit funerals of up to 30 people, that will necessarily make it a smaller service. Boris Johnson, for example, is not going. He wants to leave room for the family to attend. 
But also, it's what Prince Philip apparently wanted. He didn't want a great deal of fuss, and that will have determined the size uh, and sort of relative importance relative to other royal funerals of this funeral. It will be available on TV for those who want to watch it, but I will not be one of those people, to your doubtless surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, surprise, surprise. Darren, let let me uh, go in a totally different direction, if I can, uh, with you. Uh, I was, uh, not too long ago, I was in Belfast, and, and it was... Remarkable because I had been there years before reporting during some of the so-called troubles uh, in Northern Ireland. And when I was there recently, it was, well, everything seemed so nice and it was peaceful. And I was remarking that that to others that, uh, well, this is very different than it was years before when I had been there. But now uh, Belfast in particular has had quite a bit of violence. What's going on? It's Brexit. And it is the fact, despite the fact that people were told this repeatedly and and in many cases didn't seem to listen, Brexit is essentially incompatible with the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement was set up uh, about 21 years ago now. In fact, the 21st anniversary, I think, has just passed. And the genius of it was it is essentially allowed anybody on the island of Ireland to choose whether they were British or Irish or both or neither. And it made the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland essentially very unimportant, a common travel area. Also, anyone who was born on the island of Ireland, as I say, they could choose whether they were British or Irish and and, and, and both if they wanted. The problem now with Brexit, of course, is that you have the Republic of Ireland in the European Union and the UK, to my enormous regret, not in the European Union. So there has to be a border somewhere. And the, the the conclusion that the country seems to have come to, or that Boris Johnson seems to have come to, much to the fury of people in Northern Ireland who want to remain British, is that the border is now down the Irish Sea. There is a customs border between Great Britain and, and Northern Ireland. So there are checks on goods traveling between two parts of the United Kingdom. And that is a, a source of absolute fury to the unionists in Northern Ireland who want to stay united with the United Kingdom. The irony is that many of them voted for Brexit, despite the warnings that came constantly, repeatedly, and as it turns out, accurately for a number of years. Darren Adam, presenter on LBC Radio out of London. Darren, thanks for coming back. Regeneron Pharmaceuticals says it will ask the FDA to allow its COVID-19 antibody therapy to be used as a preventative treatment. It's already approved to treat adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 and pediatric patients at least 12 years old who have tested positive for the virus and are at high risk of severe disease. You may remember it was given to former President Trump last year. Regeneron says a clinical trial found the drug reduced the risk of symptomatic infections in people by 81%. The company also says people who were symptomatic and were treated with the drug resolved their symptoms on average two weeks faster than those who received a placebo. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on odyssey.com in the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.